right. Welcome to the Michael Slate Show. I'm your host, Michael Slate. It's less than a month until Trump is supposed to leave office. But as we know, what will happen in the next few weeks is still up in the air. So we'll continue to share with you the understanding of what we're up against and what we need to do together for the sake of humanity and the planet. At the back end of today's show, we're going to be listening to a very special Christmas treat. And that is we'll be... uh, talking with uh, Stephanie Myers, the editor of a book called The Atheist Guide to Christmas. And we'll be talking with Paul Krasner, one of the founders and the initiators of the whole Yippie movement back in the 1960s. But opening the show up, we'll hear two segments from the most recent Refuse Fascism Forum on COVID, a case study with life and death stakes, science, epistemology, conspiracy, and fascism. We're going to hear two of the panelists, Dr. Phil Rice, one of the frontline medical workers who himself contracted COVID-19 earlier this year. He is the emergency medicine director at North Shore Hospital in Salem, Massachusetts, and an internationally recognized expert in emergency care. Following that will be Andy Z, co-initiator of Refuse Fascism and host of the Revolution Nothing Less show on YouTube. So let's hear from Dr. Phil Rice. I, uh wanted to kind of really speak about the two aspects of this disease uh, that are basically impacted by both capitalism in general as well as by this fascist regime. And they intersect in many ways. This disease, as it first was unfolding, we as scientists and as physicians were communicating with other physicians around the world. There were different websites and different apps that we used to kind of uh, exchange ideas and thinking. It was really a beautiful collage of international cooperation to fight a common enemy. And then all of a sudden, we saw various countries, including this country in particular, all of a sudden try and stymie all that. Everything became either an American thing or Italian thing. It truly was causing rebellion amongst all the different scientists that were fighting against this disease because we recognize this disease is a zoonotic disease, one that doesn't really care about whether you're you know, a mammal or a bird, but has its bullseye on all human beings. And it doesn't matter what country you're from, and it doesn't actually care. And it will infect and kill at will if you do not prepare for for this pandemic. So in that light, I think that some of the unbelievable moves that were done to stymie this really smacked the fascism that Trump represents. His backing out of the WHO was truly you know, that, that was just the icing on the cake. His defunding of the council in the White House that was preparing for pandemics and other assaults that may come our way, defunding it and putting his cronies in at uh, in different levels of the CDC and the uh, FDA, all these things were things that really strangled the ability of uh, several different Uh, things to occur. So the first thing in terms of preparing for a pandemic is to try to prepare to stop the disease before it spreads. He had time. And this is one of the biggest and most, you know, damning things is that he knew what this was. He knew how deadly it was. And yet he did absolutely nothing 
he downplayed it. And this was truly criminal to have this knowledge and not put it and have at your fingertips the ability to mitigate this and to do absolutely nothing on purpose. So that's part of the first thing. And I think part of that had to do with this whole fascist sense of having to control the truth. And there's an old saying, if you take away truth, you can't speak truth to power. And when you've done that, all that's left is power. And that's what he wants. So I think that that explicit downplaying and, and really seeing the effects of that nationalism on what it did to our ability to figure out where this virus was. Because without testing, and everybody remembers, when we were trying to get testing, if you don't know where the virus is, how can you mitigate? How can you stop the spread? You can't. You can't quarantine. You can't do any of that unless you have testing. The WHO offered us a test that way back in early February and said, this is the test we're using throughout the world. And, and they said, no, we want an American test. And the American test ended up taking close to eight weeks after that to get out and to be used. And even then, in woefully pitiful small amounts so that we couldn't really do the type of testing that was necessary in order to figure out where the virus was and how to mitigate its effects. Meanwhile, it was ravaging the Northeast at that time in early, uh, in early spring. And just like, you know, this, this thing about uh, this fascist extolling of the heartland while decrying the squalor of the urban area, that led to Trump saying, you know, well, they ought to quarantine, you know, New York City, the hell with them. You know, he in fact decided to move out, move to Mar-a-Lago, you know, et cetera. This is kind of like classic fascist appeal to the heartland, his, his social base or his fascist base. So the second thing you have to do is you need to lead the communications efforts and get out the word when outbreaks do occur. And basically all you heard was, this will go away. You didn't hear anything about where this virus is. You didn't hear anything about the steps you needed to take in order to mitigate the virus's effects. What you heard was, don't ignore, go ahead and ignore this. This won't hurt you. In the midst of the fact that thousands of people were dying. And that was actually thousands just in one city. And to think that that wasn't gonna to come to your city was just happy talk. So I think that this in and of itself is clear evidence that this guy really, really is a criminal in all respects. And I'm speaking, I get the chance to talk to you all but I know my colleagues who would love to tell you the moral trauma that they've experienced knowing that the person in front of them on that stretcher is dying because it could have been avoided had the right things been done. And now they're in front of us, can't breathe. We're determining whether they need a tube in their lungs or not. And all because of what? Because of this guy, this fascist fool. So I think that you know, there are a bunch of things that we need to look at in terms of both the fascism, but also what capitalism just does in and of itself. I think that 
many of the things that you need to do from a public health stance have to rely upon mitigation and quickly enact policies and strategies that are going to stop the spread and save lives. And instead, what did you see? Over and over again, what was his message? His message was, let me have a MAGA rally where I'm going to display all the elements that you don't want to do in order to stop us and mitigate the spread of a virus. I'm going to have thousands at a rally, no mask, no social distancing, streaming their lungs out. What message does this give to anybody? What message does this give to the people of the world? Because we're not just talking about Americans, even though we live in this country. We're talking about the people of the world. This message is, is that it's a fascist message, that this virus, we can defeat it by, without science. We can defeat it by our, our gut instincts. We don't need to listen to pointy-headed intellectuals. And this is classic for a fascist you know, uh, idiot. He wants to ex show how powerful and how macho he is and how tough he is how he rips off the mask when he gets back to the White House after he's had the best and most advanced treatments that anybody could find anywhere, and many of which I still can't order or can't uh, uh, give to my own patients because they're, only, they're, they're on short supply and they're actually, people may not know this, but there are lotteries to actually determine who gets some of these drugs, these infusions, the new BAM infusion. You have to get in a lottery to be it because there's not enough for it to go around. But he got it. And then after he gets this and a bunch of other things, all of a sudden he's going to come out big and strong and say that everybody, you know, this is nothing to fear. We can beat this. So lastly, I want to really hit on, and I'm hoping that we do get into a discussion about truth and the epistemology and that sort of stuff. I won't speak about it now, but... Early on, we kind of thought that most we saw we saw the disparities in this disease. Where Black and Hispanic and Native American people were being were dying at much larger numbers, in much larger numbers than our white fellows, our fellow Americans, and we were kind of looking at all sorts of things and trying to explain this. And Initially, we said, well, it's because of, you know, our, the exposure to uh, hypertension and the uh, other risk factors that Black and Latino Americans may suffer because of the way the system treats them, et cetera, and how they have to live. But then over the past few months, we decided to look at some of the data. What the data shows is even more damning. And what the data shows is that the case fatality rate among black, white, Hispanics is identical. And what that means is it's not in the genes. What it means is that it's all about the exposure. It's all about where people live. It has nothing to do with genes. The households are more crowded. Many people work jobs that require frequent contact with others. And they rely on public transportation. The toll on black and Hispanic Americans could easily have been ameliorated in advance of the pandemic by a less threadbare and cruel approach to social welfare and healthcare in this country. In the meantime, they're trying to get rid of and throw people off their healthcare by the millions 
And my colleagues in France and Italy were calling me saying, what is wrong with your country? First of all, we were worried about you because at least in France, we have a national healthcare system where we can strategize where to put resources, how to move resources. My Italian buddy in Milan said the same thing. How are you guys going to do that? You guys don't even have a, a, a coherent system within one city, much less the whole country. And then what was Trump's response? Well, states, figure it out yourself. It's not my, not my responsibility to figure this out. So when I talk about this moral trauma, we talk about what I'm talking about is that and I think about what could we have done if we lived under a different system? Could we have protected citizens from risky work situations by providing some sort of way for them to stay home? And people said, well, geez, you gave the subsidies to the airlines and you gave them to the cruise ships, 40 billion, 60 billion a piece. And yet you couldn't help uh, supply you know, safety for the basic masses. Seems kind of odd. You know, but it's an indictment of the system. So the fact that people died in the same case fatality rate tells you that it's why people, how people live and where people live and the conditions that they live, that's what killed them more than anything else. So, yes, Trump had a whole list of fascist approaches to dealing with the pandemic, forcing scientists to defend so, uh, their their research and why they did that research, and then trying to control the message that that they were trying to put out as the results of their research, preventing Fauci from even testifying in the House of Representatives. Uh, I think that blocking the dissemination from the MMWR, from the FDA and the CDC, that's made a lot of my colleagues say, "Geez." Here's the new MMR, uh, new new, uh, new magazines. Can we trust this? Because we know it's coming from the government. How many fingers have the polit politicians had in this had, had in this message? And then we have to dissect it. Whereas before, we could rely upon this pretty easily. And then I think that, you know, in terms of the nationalism and the continued nationalism instead of the cooperation in the rest of the world is really an indictment of all that we've seen. And we couldn't have the Trump-Pence regime leave soon enough. They've had this hand holding back while everybody trying to take care of patients, trying to control this virus, and we can control it. We have a, now they have a problem. They've denigrated the science so much. How are they going to get people vaccinated? Who's going to believe the vaccination actually works? How are they going to do this now? Now you're going to go backtracking on this? There's been no effort to deal with the, you know, the, the question of the effectiveness of the vaccine and why the vaccine may work. Because COVID is an RNA virus. And the vaccine that we currently are looking at takes a snippet that codes for a certain protein. It injects it into you. It's not the virus itself. It's just a snippet that actually codes for the protein. That's called an mRNA. You have lots of mRNA. That's how all your protein gets produced. That mRNA goes through what something in the cell called the ribosome, and that ribosome spits out a protein. 
And that mRNA that went through it gets degraded and reused. Well, that protein is a foreign protein. Your body begins to find that protein on, in its bloodstream and it forms antibodies to it. Your T lymphocytes, which are part of your immune system, start to recognize it and form memory about it. That's how this particular vaccine works. It's a novel one. We've never used it before, but it's the first time we've never ejected an attenuated virus or a live virus in order to achieve immunity. The virus, the uh, virus that's being used in the AstraZeneca trial in England, that's an attenuated adenovirus. And it's had its gonads removed, so it can't replicate inside you. But it, too, delivers the mRNA or of the coronavirus. And that's how it produces its immunity. And there are other different ways to produce immunity. I will close by saying that we have a long way to go. We're going to see a lot more deaths because of what's happened. They've been unnecessary deaths. Do not let anybody tell you differently. This could have been avoided. That was Dr. Phil Rice, Emergency Medicine Director at North Shore Hospital in Salem, Massachusetts. We're going to take a quick break and be right back, so stay tuned. Now we're going to hear Andy Z, co-initiator of Refuse Fascism and host of the Revolution Nothing Less show on YouTube. I also want to mention that the panel from this forum included other members of the Refuse Fascism editorial board, Coco Das, who has been a frequent guest here, and Paul Street, an independent progressive policy researcher, award-winning journalist, historian, and author. You can watch the entire panel discussion on the Refuse Fascism channel on YouTube. So let's hear from Andy Z. Okay, so all of you, uh, my co-panelists, have presented uh, really compelling evidence of the criminal rejection and the outright opposition to science by the Trump-Pence regime. This regime's electoral defeat has focused up in a profound way how far detached from reality they actually are. Not only were the lawsuits filed by a demented Rudy Giuliani having no evidence, but literally crazy Conspiracy QAnon theories were put forward to explain the imagined election theft. QAnon is a shadowy internet super spreader of fascist lunatic theories, such as that the Democratic Party is in reality a child kidnapping operation organized around capturing children to literally suck their blood. And after this election, we now have QAnon spouters who ran on, won, and will represent the Republic fascist party of Trump and Pence in Congress. Lunacy like this, when laughed at and shrugged off, masks the danger to humanity that exists when a huge section of America is completely unhinged from reality and who fervently believe their alternate fact-free reality as morally superior and existential for their lives. And this destruction of truth is a key factor in the forging of a fascist base, a fascist leader, and a fascist form of rule. We've lived it for four years and it's been metastasizing for 40. 
Trump and Pence will likely be out soon, yet even as they are not yet gone, they can do enormous harm up until they no longer have their hands on the weapons of state power. But even out of power, this fascist danger will remain. So both Paul Street and Dr. Phil Rice have brought telling evidence that the Trump-Pence fascist regime's refusal to take and foster a scientific approach to the COVID virus has meant that the scientists, the medical researchers, and the frontline health workers, as well as the broad masses of people whose role in adopting safe practices to slow the spread of the infection was, and still is, decisive until the majority of people here and around the world are inoculated with this vaccine, with a safe and effective vaccine. And that this has led to an appalling criminal number of unnecessary death and disease. But I wanna begin this talk by bringing in some additional evidence to the discussion. So we're just gonna play a very brief video. We hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And I think you said, that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that, too. Sounds interesting. Right. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning, because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs, so it'd be interesting to check that, so that you're gonna have to use medical doctors with, but it sounds, it sounds interesting to me. It's going to disappear, one day it's like a miracle, it will disappear, yes. and from our shores, we've, you know, it could get worse before it gets better, it could maybe go away, we'll see what happens. So look, we, we laugh at this, especially at Sarah Cooper's hilarious mouthing of Trump's insanity. But this should be the door to a stark confrontation with the horror show that this ignoramus, this psychopath, this fascist has brought down on humanity. The absurdity of Trump's blathering accomplishes a purpose, a fascist purpose, the effect of which is potentially even deadlier than the cost in death and debilitating illness because it destroys any sense of what is real and what is not and how to determine what is true without which people are susceptible to being manipulated, including to commit great crimes. And such buffoonery entertains the fascist base who relish the fascist leader's irreverence and feel validated in their resentment and their desire for revenge against those they have been taught to feel are taking from or looking down on them. But at the same time, the buffoonery captivates while it blinds liberals and progressives to confronting the enormity and the essence of what is going on, which is the fight at the top of society for a fascist form of rule, the, shed the shredding of all pretense of democracy, of a more blatant form of dictatorship of the capitalist system by the leader of the fascist party, and the forging of a different cohering set of values, of an amalgam of open white supremacy, patriarchy, and xenophobia, cohered with the mythology and the program of America First, undergirded by a fundamentalist Christian theocracy. I said this has been four years and 40 years. 40 years ago, in response to changes in the world and the risings of the 1960s, 
and what were resulting concessions to those struggles, resulting in even greater recognition of and inclusion of black people, Latinos, Chicanos, women, and the gay rights movement. After President Nixon was forced to resign, this hard right conservative movement coalesced behind Ronald Reagan. The movements of the 60s was not a hard right conservative movement. The hard right conservative movement is what was being rebelled against in the 60s. But then after Nixon was forced to resign, that movement regrouped and coalesced behind Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan put forth a messianic mythology of America as a shining city on a hill to prepare for an actual war against the then Soviet Union, and at the same time to wage a domestic war on these civil rights gains. A Republican coalition was forged with a strand of biblically literalist Christian evangelical movements to forge a base of what has become a Christian fascist movement which reached power in 2016 through the unholy union of Donald Trump and Mike Pence. And this has become the core of the organized base of the Trump-Pence regime. These, these forces have been trained and forged in a belief system that is completely and dangerously disconnected from actual reality. This is a movement with a large section who believe in end times, which means they believe that they, the faithful, will be raptured, magically, tra magically transported up to heaven, and thus, nothing else matters to hell with, quite literally, the environment, the danger of nuclear war, and all the people who they regard as less than or other than human, who they would just as soon see eliminated. And this movement has coexisted with the whole culture and media that has been training millions and millions of people in a mode of thinking of what benefits us, what benefits me, is true because I, we want it to be so with no criteria of actual evidence. This way of thinking, what benefits me, finds expression in their taking the very American concept of the absolute freedom of the individual, which is an undesirable impossibility in any case, as the greatest good. The concept of the absolute freedom of each person as the greatest good, again, an undesirable impossibility. We are living and dying with this in the morally sick and actual sickening spread of the virus in their refusal to wear masks expresses my right to be an asshole trumps your right to live, especially so if you're a Latino, black, or Native American. And this fascist belief system is buttressed by twin pillars of American chauvinism that refuses to look at the history and the present day reality of the United States which has put this country in the vampire position of actually sucking the lifeblood of the, life of the rest of the world. The children who are digging in toxic conditions for precious metals for our cell phones in the Congo, or women risking their lives in the perilous garment shops of Bangladesh. Humanity whose lives and labor are being poured into the wealth of America and its imperialist allies and rivals. And buttressing this, is an epistemology in which facts are subordinated to their desire to benefit themselves and take revenge upon those whom they believe stand in the way of their further gorging. But wait, we also have to look at the epistemology, which is the way of thinking, of the progressive and liberal strata. All those who've been outraged at the Trump-Pence regime 
but who over four years overwhelmingly would not recognize or acknowledge what this regime actually is, a fascist regime with dire consequences for humanity here and around the world, and who up to this moment have refused to not only recognize and name this fascism, but to act against it in the only way it could really be rocked back on its heels by getting out in the streets and sustained nonviolent protests. Well, I know that these decent people, outraged by the bigotry of the Trumpites, may be made uncomfortable by confronting the reality that their complacency and putting their faith in the institutions and normal political processes, particularly the Democratic Party, is also based on the reality of living atop the food chain of capitalism imperialism in the US. Last April, the revolutionary leader Bob Avakian wrote a piece titled, Conspiracy Theories, Fascist Certitude, Liberal Paralysis, or a Scientific Approach to Changing the World. And I'm gonna read a substantive passage from this because it concentrates a great deal of what has plagued the millions of progressive people from acting in the way they should to drive this regime from power. And that has tremendous implications for the future. So I'm reading from his essay from early in the COVID crisis, April 2nd, I believe. Even as people in the medical field are proceeding on the basis of a scientific approach, and in the context of the coronavirus crisis, liberals are insisting that it is vitally important now to listen to the scientists. For far too long, many liberals and progressives have allowed themselves to become paralyzed by a relativist agnosticism, lacking, lacking, even rejecting the very idea of certitude, with ridiculous notions like, quote, how can you know what is really true? No one can say that their truth is greater than someone else's truth, and so, and so on. Meanwhile, fascist forces, marked by a truly dark ages mentality, and firmly convinced of the truth of all manner of lunatic conspiracy theories promoting fascist values and objectives, are eagerly embracing callous Philistinism, willfully rejecting critical thinking, smugly ignoring, defying, and denigrating science and the scientific method. Put another way, in terms of major trends in society as a whole, those who have the most certitude are those who are the most out of touch with reality. And he goes on to say, further complicating the situation and an additional dimension to this problem is the fact that although they do not share but strongly oppose the values and objectives of the fascists, many of the basic masses who are bitterly oppressed under this system are also suspicious of and are even inclined to reject science and scientifically grounded analysis. But this also leaves you vulnerable to all kinds of unfounded conspiracy theories and other wrong and harmful ideas, including the, nothing, the notion that nothing people do will make a difference because it is all in God's hands." End quote. All of this written in April has tremendous relevance right now. Look, there's great danger and no way forward for the interests of humanity in a society, in a culture of competing stories or narratives where you have your narrative and she has hers and I have mine. Look, we have different experiences and those experiences and knowledge of them can contribute to our understanding of the world that we live in. 
But to understand the world, you need a scientific understanding that starts from the fact that there is only one reality that has many layers and complexity, but there is one objective world. Science means gathering the evidence and seeking the patterns in that evidence to reveal the connections and the pathways to identifying and understanding the underlying causes that give rise to the evidence, and then developing the ways to act on that reality. And this is true whether you are a scientist trying to discover the antibodies to prevent the spread of COVID, as Phil was talking about, or to save the environment, or you are applying the scientific method to overcome the exploitation and oppression, the wars and the divisions that so plague humanity today and themselves cause the lives of hundreds of millions of people. In this article, though, Bob Bavakin goes on to say this, quote, the truth of something does not depend on who says it or how it makes you feel. Because something comes from a source you like does not make it true. And because something comes from a source you do not like does not make it untrue. And truth is not a popularity contest. Because a lot of people believe something does not make it true. And because only a few people believe something does not make it untrue. Truth is objective, which means whether something is true or not depends on whether or not it corresponds to actual reality. And he goes on to say, quote, to sort out what is false from what is true and to stand on solid ground in terms of understanding things, you need a scientific method and approach to reality. And yes, scientifically grounded certitude, where such certitude can and must be established, end quote. So for just a brief example of how we can apply science to society, and I'm going to compress here, how can we say, as we have, uh, and I have said oh, many times on the show, and Bob Avakian has written, uh, that there is a straight line from the Confederacy to the fascism of the Trump-Pence regime? Well, by tracing its development in the history of the U.S., beginning with slavery written into the U.S. founding documents, by going deeper into its centrality of, uh, of slavery and the oppression of black people to the development of the wealth in the U.S. from the 17th up to and through the 20th century. The history of the betrayal of Reconstruction that ushered in the era of lynching and Jim Crow, through the current era of the new Jim Crow, where the police play the role of the KKK, and now the open white supremacy that was evidenced in the attempt of the Trump-Pence regime to discard the millions of urban black votes in cities that voted for Biden. And look, there's much more that I could go into here, but the point is, just as in the natural world, you go to the evidence, in this case, the history and the underlying economic and political forces that drive this white supremacy, and all of this is available in great detail and depth on the website in articles and films from Bob Avakian and articles from Revcom.us, our website. This scientific method is at the heart of the work of Bob Avakian and is the defining character of his leadership. Bob Avakian, BA, has qualitatively developed the science of communism, the science of revolution, to chart the path to the emancipation of all humanity. And think about what it would mean if under a totally different system that didn't set people against each other just to survive and how that shapes people's thinking today, but instead there was a shared epistemology basing our lives and decisions on a collective process of discovering and acting on what was actually true 
that would require a whole different system for that to be in effect. But imagine how different that would be. This is, as Bob Avakian has said, is what is needed to get to a world beyond where might makes right, which is what prevails in the world today. This is expressed in both Bob Avakian's personal character and it is a hallmark of the principles of the new communism, which completely repudiate the notion that the ends justify the means and that truth is just an instrument of, of desired objectives rather than what it actually is, a correct reflection of objective reality. To all who reject the anti-science of the Trump-Pence fascist regime and the dangerous movement they have forged all the way up to the highest reaches of government, including dominating now the Supreme Court, this talk that I'm giving is a challenge and an invitation to you to be consistent and principled in your recognition of the importance of science and to apply it not just where you feel comfortable in the prevention and curing of COVID, but as Baba Vicky concludes in this same article, quote, follow the truth where it leads, particularly when it comes to historical, social, and political questions. Because where it leads is to demolishing cherished ideals and prejudices of liberals regarding the actual role of this great American democracy through its history and throughout the world the actual nature of the system we live under, capitalism, imperialism, and the actual experience of the revolutionary struggle against this system, and more particularly, the experience of the communist movement and the socialist societies it has brought into being." End quote. I conclude with this, a better world is possible. There is a way that everyone can be part of knowing and changing the world. In opposing the fascism of the Trump-Pence regime, and even more fundamentally, in making a radical leap beyond this capitalist imperialist system, which has given rise to this fascism, and bringing it to being a far better world, you need the scientific method and approach of the new communism. So, thank you. That was Andy Z, co-initiator of Refuse Fascism and host of the Revolution Nothing Less show on YouTube. Now, you can see Andy every week on the Revolution Nothing Less show on the YouTube channel, the Revcoms. Now, a few years ago, I interviewed two people who I think brought a great version of the Christmas spirit to the world. Stephanie Myers, who was the editor of one of my favorite Christmas storybooks, The Atheist Guide to Christmas, was joined in that interview by someone who also had a very special place in my heart. One of the original tormentors of the status quo and one of the people who helped turn the myth of America's promise on its head, rolled up and forever trashed, Paul Krasner. Paul was one of the people who literally shaped the movement that helped create one of the most rebellious periods in American history. Now, this interview was done shortly before Paul died, but it remains as a treasure of Paul's ability to rip open the heart of all that makes America so despicable. And although he's been dead for quite some time now, I have no doubt that he would have loved to continue skewering the American nightmare. This is for you, Paul. Well, I walked to town in the pouring rain, paid my fare and I rode that train. Station under the avenue, hit the air at the stroke of noon. At the 
across streets where I staked my claim. I played in tune with the winter rain, collecting dimes and dollar bills while the noisy traffic played the fills. And it's Christmas time in the city. Welcome back. You're listening to the Michael Slate Show, and that was Mary Chapin Carpenter with "Christmas Time in the City," a really beautiful song. And imagine this. It manages to capture the spirit of the season and, best of all, takes the holy out of holiday. In that spirit, I'm really happy to welcome our next guest to the show. Stephanie Myers is one of the editors of what I found to be one of the more fascinating books of the Christmas season, The Atheist Guide to Christmas. And Paul Krasner is one of the contributors of this as well as being, and Paul's got a, he has got a, I don't know, I'd say he's got a bio that stretches about a football field long, and he's always been one of the people who I've looked to in the world to kind of look at and understand that there's really, both through satire and through telling the truth, he's really helped a lot of people see what reality is. He's the author of Confessions of a Raving, Unconfined Nut, Misadventures in the Counterculture, and he's the recent recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Oakland branch of Penn. So, Stephanie, Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Sure. Well, Stephanie, let's jump into it with you first. What the hell got into you to get into this Atheist Guide to Christmas, hmm? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it actually started a couple years ago with the UK Atheist Bus Campaign, where UK journalist Ariane Shireen noticed that a lot of Christian organizations were advertising on buses, and she said, you know what, why can't we do that? So she set out to raise a little bit of money and ended up raising 150,000 pounds to do bus advertisements saying, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. So at that point, it just seemed like there was the energy and the excitement to turn something like that into a book with that same sort of attitude. So that's where this came from. Mm -hmm. And how did you get involved in it? You know, I am closely in touch with HarperCollins UK colleagues, and so they sent over this project. And being someone who was never raised practicing a religion but who loves Christmas as well as other holidays, I mean, I'm just as excited about Halloween as Christmas, honestly, but... It spoke to me, and there were such great contributors signed up and so many different types of essays and so many different ways that people still really enjoyed the holidays despite their religious affiliations or non-affiliations. So I just thought it was such a fun project. And, Paul, how about you? How did you get involved in this? Stephanie invited me to contribute, and it was for a good cause. Stephanie can talk more about that. And it was an opportunity to see that, that this is another little evolutionary jump in atheism coming out of the closet. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, I got beaten up for it. So it's a sign of progress in that, so I was happy to accept her invitation. Now, you grew up in New York? Yes. Okay, and you, are you telling me that, do you expect me to believe that there were gangs of God-filled heathens, <laughs> or God-filled whatever, hooligans, not heathens, God-filled hooligans who were beating up heathens? Hmm. Well, no, 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 it wasn't a, it wasn't a gang. Uh, you know, it was just like uh, one or two guys from junior high school. Oh, okay. Well, I got beat up by a gang of nuns, you know. that was. <laughs> I also got really? strangled. Yes, I got strangled by the bishop, too, when I got my confirmation because I asked the question you weren't supposed to ask. Wait a minute, how can you be three, three, three gods in one? The bishop actually slapped my face really hard, knocked me off the altar rail, and uh, that sort of marked my exit from Catholicism. So, hmm. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah, no, but that's a very nice visual picture, a gang of nuns. <laughs> it may be nice to talk about now, but I still have horrible, horrible nightmares about it. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, as an atheist, I don't have a uh, believe in a God to get mad at me. But, I, but it is a paradox, Michael, because not only am I an atheist, but I'm also an absurdist. 
And what could be more absurd than for an atheist to have continuing dialogue with the deity doesn't believe exists? <laughs> and are you saying that you do that? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> like as a, as a stand-up satirist, when I'm in the green room waiting to go on, I'll, I'll say, please, God, help me do a good show. And then I'll hear the voice of God say, shut up, you superstitious fool. <laughs> Okay, there's so much to unravel about that, Paul. I don't know where to begin. <laughs> We're talking with writer and satirist Paul Krasner, one of the contributors to The Atheist Guide to Christmas, and Stephanie Myers, a co-editor of the book. Stephanie, Paul mentioned the, the idea that atheists actually, and, it's, and who knows whether it, this is absolutely true, but atheists, and I know from my own experience and having been an atheist for a very long time, but also talking with other people around it, and I've talked with P.Z. Myers about this, there's a tendency, not only are atheists, like in this country in particular, really cowled or there's that idea that they're the most hated minority in the country, but there's really, people are not very aggressive and assertive when it comes to their atheist beliefs. And in Britain and in Europe, it's a little bit of a different story, but you've gotten a number of people from the U.S. to actually contribute to this atheist guide. How did you find doing that? How did you find the people to do that? You know, it's funny. I literally, I was responsible for bringing in more U.S. contributors. And, of course, I had my list of big names. And then I wanted to find more up-and-coming writers. And I was literally just Googling, you know, lists of up-and-coming atheists or, you know, lists of feminist atheists and just trying to find great people who are talking. Like one person, Jennifer McCrate, who blogs at blaghag.com. She's a young grad student. I think she's just brilliant and someone to keep an eye on, so I was really excited about finding that. But I would say I'm someone who's totally guilty of being an in-the-closet atheist, and until I worked on this project, I just hadn't thought about it. It was something that didn't come up in life ever, and so working on this, I've really started to see that there's some point to talking a little bit more about it, and it's been an interesting evolution for me, and I'm excited to bring that to other people, because really it's such, it's such a tame-looking book, right? It's a great entryway. If someone isn't feeling aggressive about it and really doesn't want to commit to a more, a longer, more in-depth book, this is a great thing to start off and get a sense of who's writing in this space. Well, you know, it's interesting because it's sort of, yes, the book is, you know, it's got snowflakes on the front. It says The Atheist Guide to Christmas, and you, you put featuring Richard Dawkins and a number of other people. And then when you open it up, it actually is a lot different than what I expected to find, actually. I mean, I really enjoyed all of the various stories. Now, I'd ask you, leaving aside Paul for a moment... <laughs> What is one of your favorite stories in here? I really love Simon Singh's piece, which is about celebrating a different birth, which is the birth of the universe at Christmas. And I think it's a great mixture of good writing and good science, and that's really one of my favorites. Now, Paul, in your piece, you actually, I mean, it's very interesting because you don't just talk about yourself developing as an atheist, although I I find that really fascinating and funny, but I also felt you also did something that was very horrifying, which is, and revealing, when you talked about the title of your piece is There's No Atheist in the White House. Can you talk about some of the things that you revealed in that, which I thought are mind-blowing, because people don't know this stuff about the presidents and their conversations with this non-existent deity. Yes, well, I did some research uh, because there was so much religious piety coming out of the White House, and my attitude towards believers is not hostile because whether they use it as a crutch or they believe it sincerely, my turning point was when, because I was more militant then than I am now, but what was my turning point was that Martin Luther King was a Christian and he was a kind, moral activist, uh, humane, Whereas at the same time, George Lincoln Rockwell, who was the head of the American Nazi Party, called himself an agnostic. So the tipping point for me was to start 
just relating to people, not by what they believed, but that how they related to humans and animals and uh, the earth. And so, so I don't categorize that. And so, uh, in my research, and, and but I did believe that that people who who thought that God actually talked to them were deluded, including George Bush. And then in my research, I found out that his father said the same kind of things: an atheist shouldn't be in the White House. That uh, went back to Lyndon Johnson. You know, it was, and there were others. And it, there's only one. Abby Hoffman once told me. Abby Hoffman, the late activist and co-founder of the Yippies started out uh, uh, as his, as another co-founder Jerry Rubin did working within the system and 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 Abby was supporting some candidate in uh Boston and somebody asked the candidate about religion he said, and he said oh I'm an, an atheist and the reporters started walking out they said okay there goes the ball game and so currently now I think Pete Stark is the only I guess as you say openly gay openly atheistic in in uh the entire legislature. <laughs> so, and there were laws in some states. In the article, I, I, I mentioned specifically uh, in different states where they said that nobody could be a candidate uh, if if they didn't profess a belief in God. So it shows the background of the kind of thing that that religion and politics are are, are such are in the same bed together. And and you know, and they always had Billy Graham come there, and even when. Richard Nixon, one of the tapes revealed, uh, was saying some of his anti-Semitic uh, remark. Billy Graham agreed, you know, and that's as bad as saying itself. I wrote to the uh, uh, Anti-Defamation League about that and never heard back. Yeah, well, it's interesting how much comes out of the mouths of these God-fearing people. I mean, it's even, you know, you have General Boykin, and you have all the, the thing that happened in Fallujah where people were, these commanders in, in, in Iraq were, demand, you know, as they're, as they're committing this horrific slaughter and one of the worst war crimes in the Iraq war in Fallujah, and they're talking about that the face of Satan is in there, and they're going to go in and defeat Satan for God, you know, and it's, I mean, this kind of thing that develops here, it's interesting to me because you, you have the most, and even with Bush, when you were talking about Bush's father in your article, you actually make the point that George Bush the first actually made the point not just that people shouldn't occupy the White House, but he doesn't know that atheists should be considered citizens. Hmm. <laughs> well, you know, there was one thing, oh, you mentioned uh, that I got the Penn Lifetime Achievement Award, and so in my speech, I always knew, I made a vow to myself that if I ever got an award like that, this is what I would do. And so I said, you know, you don't get a Lifetime Achievement Award for just uh, 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 doing everything alone. You know, you collaborated with people, you were supported by people and nurtured. And I said, and I would like to, to thank uh, these people in chronological order, starting with my parents, and who were embarrassed by, by what I wrote and even ashamed of it, but nevertheless, uh, you know, I was editing The Realist, which was considered by others as the hippest magazine in America, but I was still living with my parents. <laughs> okay, so I said, but first and foremost, I don't know about, many of you uh, don't know too much about my spiritual quest. And so, first of all, I would like to thank Satan. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, <laughs> and the people who knew me there, you know, laughed. But there were, you know, uh, a book, uh, various book awards, and the people who came for that, it was they were silent because there was no way to tell that uh, that I wasn't uh, being sincere. And I mean, in fact, I, I have said uh, to people, you know, when they they read it in the uh, uh, San Francisco Chronicle and knew about it, and they and they asked me about it, and I said, well, you know, it was a tough competition, but I beat out Justin Bieber. <laughs> and a lot of people 
said, oh, yeah, I, yes, and he's only 14. I said, yes, but he's writing his memoir. <laughs> okay, all right, that's a good one there. Hmm. We're talking with Stephanie Myers, one of the co-editors of The Atheist Guide to Christmas, and to writer and satirist Paul Krasner, one of the contributors to this anthology. Paul, just one more quick question for you um, at the moment is, you know, people, Stephanie talked about her own sort of being reticent about coming out with her atheism. You actually became an atheist in a way. Becoming an atheist actually introduced you to a whole other world of, it seemed, in what you describe in the, in the article. It really was a, a sort of a process that brought you into a whole other social world that really seemed to have an effect on shaping the rest of your life. That's true. You know, it was a religious experience. That's the <laughs> irony of it. Uh, but um, I had been, because you can see, trace the chain of events that led you to it. Uh, but I started out in college in a philosophy course. I had to do a paper, and I wanted to do one on a dialogue between Plato and an atheist. And just on a whim, I looked up uh, atheism in the telephone book, and there it was. You know, they put the uh, the, the word that you're looking up uh, uh, left. And so it was Atheist American Association of Four A's. And I found that I went to a, a little office there, and they were uh, I met the editor of. of the paper, The Truth Seeker, which later became an anti-Semitic hate rag, but, at, you know, because it, uh, uh, when he died, they got a different editor. Uh, but they had an, uh, an ism forum, which was to talk about all the different isms at a little dinky, the Algonquin Hotel, you might remember that. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was very funky, and it was in a big ballroom with chairs all around the perimeter, and then one little uh, stage there. And so... I so I I went to that and met people there and they went to uh, a restaurant for a thing and then they they told me about the rationalist society so I went to another meeting and there there was the MC uh, for that e evening was a, a former circus performer who could hold four golf balls in his mouth uh, and demonstrated it you know I said so this is atheism. <laughs> And so, uh, and he mentioned a paper called The Independent, and I went and got uh, uh, to the office of The Independent and met Lyle Stewart, who was the biggest influence of my life. He, too, was a, uh, an atheist, and he edited a paper uh, that was the forerunner of uh, the alternative press, and I started out stuffing envelopes there and, then, and became the managing editor, and out of that developed The Realist, which was essentially... The, the banner logo on the front was a, a free thought criticism and satire. So it started out with that. And the first subscriber was Steve Allen, who <laughs> bought several subscriptions for uh, others, and then one of whom was Lenny Bruce. And Lenny sent out subscriptions to a lot of people. It was So it grew in a Malthusian way. And, and Lenny became the other big influence in my life as a satirist and I ended up editing his autobiography. So, in answer to your question, that, that there was this chain of events that, that I label as random destiny. <laughs> All right. You know, and I have to tell you, Paul, I, when I was a kid, I was reading The Realist because there was only one kid in my neighborhood, Lenny Ducardi, and his parents were, they gave him permission to actually get that all the time, and he would share it with me, and we used to sit in his basement and read that, and it was, 
it was incredible, including there were some some that just you'd, you'd left you sitting there with your mouth open, you know, and it was just so and it was so mind blowing just to read it. So I wanted to thank wow. you for that. And yeah, it's really well, you know you just painted a beautiful picture. I can picture it, uh, almost like a Norman Rockwell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but through the basement window, you can see a gang of nuns rushing at you. <laughs> you got it exactly. <laughs> oh, you had to bring those nuns up again. Now, Stephanie, one, one more question for you. You had. And I have to say, when you mentioned uh, Jennifer McCrate, her gift for the godless is priceless, and, and I won't say anything more about it, but people really have to have to check this out. And I would say something I want to read before we go, but I want to ask you one question, is I want my favorite, one of my favorite essays in here is the one by Brian Cox, which I think is very similar to what you were talking about, but I just found there's a, there's a whole part of the end that, that really I think is, is really good. I wanted to ask you this. The... The, the idea that you brought together such a wide array of people from from Paul, who actually, I mean, as we're talking about, is actually it's very humorous. There's a lot of satire involved in his, and there's a lot of truth telling. You also bring physicists, you bring scientists into it, you bring political forces into it, you, you bring comedians into it. You know, how did you that kind of vision? What kind of response have you gotten to it? How did you how did you actually bring these people together or develop that kind of vision to have that breadth of view? And then what's the response been? You know, I have to give a lot of credit to Robin, who is my co-editor, who did a lot, almost more of the legwork than I did. But really, once people found out about it, a lot of people wanted to be involved. And word sort of spread through the atheist-slash-skeptic community, and we were contacted by people who wanted to volunteer as well. So it actually was maybe much easier than it was because so many people from so many different areas of expertise, once they heard about it, really wanted to join in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Paul, Stephanie, I want to thank you both very much for joining us today. Oh, it was delightful. Anytime. And we'll have you back. Okay. Take care now. Great. And happy holidays. Oh, one, one thing. One yes. thing, Michael. God yes. bless you. <laughs> okay. You did it again. There are those nuns charging through the door. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> See you later now. Talk to you later. And that brings us to the end of yet another show. I want to thank my assistant producer, Henry Carson, my production assistant, Jeff Pryor, and each and every one of you for tuning in. If you want to share your thoughts and ideas about the show, or if you want to volunteer to be part of the show, write to me at mslate at themichaelslateshow.com. Once again, that's mslate at themichaelslateshow.com. The silver sound of sleigh bells, the rap of reindeer hoofs. A man all clothed in crimson, he runs from roof to roof. He clambers down the chimneys, leaves toys neath all the trees. Till in one home, the lights click on, and someone yells out, freeze, Santa's doing.